Hi everyone, um, welcome to Talking Jack. Um, this week I'm going to be talking about true crime. Um, so that's me, Megan, sort of taking the lead on this one. And Claire's, I suppose, a bit more in the dark with the research that I've done. So um, today's one's maybe a little bit different and it's a little bit longer, but um, it's kind of just talking about sort of why we're fascinated in true crime and what is it that keeps us coming back to watching it. And sort of, I suppose, maybe just exploring the sort of ethics around true crime and whether it's a good thing, I suppose, that things like Netflix have been um, churning out a lot of true crime uh, series that we can, you know, binge watch and, and just... Because, you know, it's quite, like, gruesome things that you're talking about and also in the end of the day it's real-life crime so it has, like, families and victims and everything involved. So, yeah, it's just sort of exploring all of that topic a bit more. So, yeah, um, we'll just we'll just start. Talking Jack. Dissecting the everyday. Okay, so before I kind of launch into any explanations and research, I just wanted to ask from you, Claire, um, at the outset, do you enjoy reading about or watching true crime? And very briefly, just why? Without analysing it or anything, just like, you know, your own sort of, maybe why, why you would maybe pick like a true crime series on Netflix or whatever. Um, I do enjoy it. I just find it really interesting. Like, it's hard to answer that question without trying to analyse it. I just find it interesting. Like, I wouldn't say, like, I exclusively, if you were talking about podcasts, for example, I don't exclusively just, like, listen to true crime, but I find myself being drawn to true crime more than anything else just because... I don't know, maybe I just like the sort of mystery and like intrigue and stuff. And I know true crime, that's the whole point of calling it true crime, but it's like the closest to something fictionalised, I suppose. (laughs) But then the reason I like it is because it's actually happened as well. Um, But yeah, maybe like a morbid curiosity or, or something I don't know I just find it really fascinating yeah cool that's fine yeah it was just at the outset I just wanted to like just ask if you like it um and then before like we maybe go into other sort of explanations about it but I'm the same to be honest um like I like true crime um like I don't love it in that like I'm like a super fan of it or that but you know I enjoy it I watch it um and again I'm like you I'm not really sure why I guess I'm maybe just more interested in like the macabre or gothic and or, like you were saying it's probably just because the two of us obviously are fans of like fictional horror as well so um kind of stands to reason that we might like true crime um but if I'm being honest really I think it's just like my fascination is kind of it lies in knowing about the killer and 
that never sits quite right with me because a big criticism of true crime anyway is that the killers tend to be more remembered than the victims but I have to say that like my own fascination with true crime is probably knowing about like why did they commit the crime um so to start um this episode on true crime I'm just going to say a little on what exactly it is um, I quite like this definition that's given by Bowling and Hull from 2018 and they say that it marries the ability to represent facts from the oh wait sorry I don't know if I said that right I'll just there uh, sorry um, it marries the ability to present facts from the real world in a fiction like narrative for, format true crime stories naturally blur the line between news and entertainment that's kind of like what you were saying about the fiction like narrative um so I suppose this is the point to stress really that true crime is a genre and its name could in some cases be a bit of a misnomer because books and tv shows of the genre will often be embellished and edited for effect so it's kind of like when you watch a horror film like Amityville or something and it says inspired by true events you don't get that caveat on true crime but you kind of should because it's all constructed um yes so uh Detailed depictions of real life crimes have been found way back in history. Joe Wilton, Waltenberg uh, has traced this kind of reporting back to 16th century Germany. And she argues that the invention of the printing press revolutionized the speed and scale with which information could be distributed to people, which led to a flood of dramatic accounts of murders in pamphlets. pamphlets. Uh, the kind of true crime we see today, though, surfaced in the late 1980s when the genre regained a boom of popularity from shows like Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted on prime TV slots. Uh, Scott Bond writes that the genre, in quotes, triggers the most basic and powerful emotion in all of us, fear. Um, and that's like what I, we were saying in the horror episode of this podcast. Um, that that evokes the kind of feelings of like pleasure and adrenaline that we experience when we watch scary films. Uh, he also says that the viewers might derive a mix of voyeuristic pleasure and guilt from watching other people's misfortune and therefore the genre is kind of a guilty pleasure for some. Um, I'd argue with this only that I'm not sure that true crime is still a guilty pleasure, given the numbers who watch the shows on Netflix and listen to uh, true crime podcasts. It's very much, I would say, sort of like accepted in the mainstream that you watch it. Um, in their book, Exploring Violent Crime in the Media, Moore and Mellon, who I'll probably refer to quite a bit, uh, give another explanation for the surge in popularity during the 1980s. So they say in the 70s and again in the mid-1990s, um, late capitalist countries like the US and the UK were keen to show themselves as being tough on crime. So since then, criminologists have argued that we've been living in an era of mass incarceration. They go on to say that the mainstream media portrays true crime in a way that often supports the agenda of mass incarceration so it shows us that society can be dangerous and that we are only safe when criminals are put behind bars 
Although it's interesting that in 2021 and 2022, financial crime and exposés of like wrongdoing by the police, for example, are quite popular. Um, I'm just going to add this sort of like random point in here. I just thought it was quite interesting that they made. And then I'll bring you in, Claire, just to see what you think. Um, so speaking of like, say, police corruption, uh, Moore and Mellons, uh, Mellons, if I'm saying it right, uh, highlight the huge success of the British drama Line of Duty. I know this isn't a true crime, it isn't true crime insofar as it's a fictional drama, but part of its success was its realism with creator Jed, oh, I can never say his last name, Mer Mer Mercurio, <laughs> probably saying that wrong, taking inspiration from the Metropolitan Police real anti-corruption unit A10, which was set up in 1971. Anyway, spoilers for anyone who's not watched the finale of um, Line of Duty, uh, Moore and Mellons talk about the reaction to Line of Duty's final episode aired in April 2021 because it was panned by a lot of critics and viewers. <laughs> I I meant to look this up again because I can't even remember what the ending is. I just remember that it was quite lukewarm for Line of Duty. Um, so you might need to remind me if you can remember. Um, on so anyway, uh, on social media, fans railed against the ending not because they thought it was unbelievable, but because it was too much like the real world and it was too believable and therefore anticlimactic. Uh, sorry, this is quite a long quote, but um, I just thought I can't write this any better than they have. So Moore and Mellon's write it in quotes. Line of Duty tries to do something more, even as it is resolutely popular in its appeal. It asks us to think differently about crime and criminal justice. We might all know deep down that institutional corruption works like this, but how many of us, when asked to think about crime and violence in particular, think first and foremost of the harm inflicted by organisations and institutions? Looked at in this way, our fascination with lone bad apple perpetrators, whether it's an H or a serial killer, reflects a deep cultural fiction that crime and violence in particular is mainly a problem of individuals harming other individuals. Yet, as social harm theorists point out, if we were to focus our attention on the acts and omissions that cause the most harm in terms of the number of people killed or hurt, we'd soon realise that corporations, governments and workplaces are responsible for most of the violence in our societies. Most activists, activists and Academics concerned with interpersonal violence too see gender norms, institutional responses, and social structures of inequality as fundamentally violent in their effects. For such critical theorists, the official and cultural understanding of violent crime is part of this problem in that it obscures and misleads, distracts, and distorts. Um, that kind of goes off a bit onto a different thing, but I think here maybe they're also given a good understanding of this current gear shift in true crime subgenre, but also how we as an audience have traditionally associated true crime with the sensationalist and the entertainment and the entertainment sort of factor, hence why maybe Line of Duty for being as believable as the ending supposedly was was also criticised by audiences because they were like, well, I'm expecting something like massive, you know, like really like sensationalist. So yeah, before I go any further into uh, true crime and explaining it all, um, have you got any thoughts that you maybe want to add in there, Claire? Yeah. 
It's interesting, um, especially when you were talking about Line of Duty. It's funny because when I think of true crime, I do not think of Line of Duty. Uh, it's just I think it's the same sort of thing that you were talking about like line of duties to um, for lack of a better word sedate for me it's 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 too realistic it's weird I now associate true crime like you're saying with a lot of sensationalism um, because you know when you were talking about how true crime used to be or, or can be seen as a guilty pleasure and it's no longer. I think that maybe comes down to um, like the shows you were talking about when they came out. I can't recall the ones you mentioned. Like, what would it be like? Dateline or something? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, Unsolved Mysteries is a big Unsolved one. Unsolved Mysteries, okay. Um, is that an American one? Unsolved Mysteries, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I just think that like maybe they were quite, they were either really trashy, like cable TV, or they were like, you know, on those random channels that even now you get that you only really flick through when you're like, oh, there's nothing on. Um, or they, like you say, because True Crime comes from like, kind of like it's that mix of the news and fiction. So it's either that or they're presented in a way like the only thing I can think of, and I know it's no longer on, it's like in Britain would be like BBC's like Crime Watch. Which I remember when we were younger, just like personally, like I was like a big thing and I was terrified of Crime Watch. Like I couldn't watch Crime Watch because I was like, this is like too real. It's like terrifying. Like this is crimes like going on in like, you know, neighborhoods exactly like mine. It's too close to home. And now I feel like the only reason like true, true crime maybe is big. Like I can't imagine people sitting down and watching something like that now. Because that, I think that's maybe why I don't associate that with True Crime now, because I think it's gone much more, um, what's the word? There's much more narrative to like True Crime now. I'm only thinking of like things that are on like streaming platforms. And I think that's the reason that they're the way they are is because like you say, they focus a lot on like the graphic sort of details of it and they sensationalize it. And there are much more like stories that you want to be involved in. And it's not just like this happened. This was the result of it. This number of people got harmed by it. And this is the perpetrator. It's like we want to know every single thing that happened. And we want the, the darker, the better. Um, but um, yeah, so I think that makes sense when like you talk about like Line of Duty. Because to me, like Line of Duty, I'm not saying Line of Duty is like Crime Watch, but it's like, that's why I don't think of Line of Duty as true crime, because I'm like, it's basically like, you know, something like Crime Watch being played. <laughs> it's like a police drama, which it is, and which is true crime in the same sort of sense. It, it would appeal to people like that. Um, but you're right, I think the end, and I'm not going to like actually like say what happened just in case people haven't seen it, but basically... The reveal, like you say, was anticlimactic because it was A, really realistic and it was um, like someone who you would have suspected like all along, but equally it wasn't enough of a payoff for what you'd gone through for those previous like five seasons or something. Um 
And then again, you've also got the thing where you have to contend with that true crime can't keep up with what's maybe like a true crime as in like fictional stuff like Line of Duty, maybe you can't keep up with what's happening in real life. So say there was more stories of, for example, like police corruption and in reality, then like the payoffs that we want in our own lives, we expect them to be played out in something like Line of Duty and it didn't quite happen for us. We are like, ah, it's we, so much injustice. I, I can't do anything about it in my own life. So I want that out of like what I'm watching and you didn't quite get that. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. And I think the, I mean, I'm not saying that like, by definition, I suppose, line of duty isn't true crime because true crime is like a real case and line of duty isn't. So line of duty is like a drama. But I just think it's quite interesting how they made that comparison. And, and I just thought it was a good like example of how we expect crime to be this really dramatic kind of thing that's perpetrated by this individual who we know and can capture rather than like a whole system which no, is what line of duty is kind of saying. I agree with that as well and just kind of like what you were saying because like I know it sounded like I was misreading your point I know you don't believe that like line of duty is true crime but I think like also like kind of to tie into that like the comparison that they were making is that like maybe true crime in of itself is like desensitized us to like stuff that uh would otherwise like shock us in dramas like police dramas like line of duty or like crime dramas you, you know like because fiction you've got like no boundary like you're not tied with what actually happened in a case you've got free license free reign to do whatever you want like be as creative as you like but it's really hard when you're competing with real stories of like really really bad people and really like quite gruesome sort of like crimes maybe that's why like we expect that from drama. Okay, so uh, I'll just delve a bit more into um, true crime. Uh, so Truman Capote's In Cold Blood is a pioneer in the history of modern American true crime. Um, and In Cold Blood was first published in 1966 and it details the murders of four members of the Clutter family in 1959 in Holcomb, probably saying that wrong, Kansas. Uh, Capote spent six years working on the book and interviewed neighbours, residents of the community investigators, and he also interviewed the killers Richard Hickok and Perry Smith, who were both ultimately hanged for their crimes. Um, just as a side note, Capote got quite close to the killers, and there's always this question over whether the two killers were gay or whether, because, um, well, Capote was um, gay, um, but whether he had a relationship with Smith, which is not really relevant, but I just think it's quite interesting. Um, okay. Was, was so, Smith one of the killers? Yeah. Oh, cool. Even, uh, sorry, but even you just saying that, I've not read it and I'm just like, oh, I kind of want to borrow that and read that. Yeah, it's a really good book. If you like true crime, you're you know you're you know it's what you want really. Yeah, it's what you want in a true crime book. Um, I, the Claire, I know this isn't relevant to anyone, but um, I'm pretty sure the book is at your house. So if you want to read it, it's there. <laughs> oh, perfect. 
I'm like, <laughs> I, I honestly, I'm here as well. Even after um, this podcast, even even if you try to convince me not to like true crime, I will still read that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Okay, so Lineman in 2015 says that we could think about In Cold Blood and true crime reporting more generally as ghost stories. Adding to the haunting power of In Cold Blood is the crucial point in US history that the murders, 1959, and the book's publication, 1966, occur. Um, And he argues, sorry, Lineman might be a female. I'll just say Lineman. Lineman um, argues that the mythical 1950s family then meets the dangerous psychotic element of American society because uh, the Clutter family um, are, I suppose, quite middle class. They're quite well off. They live in this really big farmhouse, like it's really big. And you've got then you've got Perry, then you've got Smith and Hickok who are. Um, in a really broad and general sense, or maybe like, you know, much less uh, lower class. Uh, As Capote remarked in an interview with Playboy magazine in 1966, here you have the Clutter family on one hand, such the perfect prototype of the good, solid, landed American gentry, as you point out. And on the other hand, you have the killers representing the dangerous psychotic element empty of compassion or conscience. And these two extremes mated in an act of murder. The only possible outcome of their convergence was death. So yeah, Capote narrated um, and constructed In Cold Blood pretty much around class, um, even though I'm pretty sure there's been some argument um, that, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but one of the killers isn't from like as low a background as you always think he is, um, but I would need to read about that again. Uh, but yeah, basically, um, he's putting them into this like underclass, you know, this criminality, um, and then they come in and they slaughter and kill the 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 sort of good Americans. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but nowadays, I suppose, like that's obviously a book. But I would say nowadays documentaries are probably the best example of modern true crime. Um, and probably if you know Capote and Cold Blood was around today, it would have just been a Netflix series. I can only imagine. Um, yeah, the violence portrayed on screen and the reality of violence that. Yeah, sorry. The uh, violence that you see portrayed on screen and the reality, like the real life reality of violence, they exist in contention. Argue criminologists um, such as like Surrett, um, and historically, true crime documentaries share the narrative that victims are sporadically murdered by a warped perpetrator with an abnormal psychopathology. Yet everyday violence is far less sensational. It occurs between people who probably know each other quite well. And it exists within lives and homes that are messy and are complicated. Um, Maria Elizabeth Grabe believes that the social class of criminals and victims dictate their media treatment. And criminality has been positioned as a socioeconomic, socioeconomic function of the other. 
Um, in 1980s America, shows like Hard Coffee or A Current Affair would more likely be watched by the working class people and they featured middle and upper class criminals, whereas more sophisticated and stylized shows like Dateline were watched more by the middle classes and that featured working class criminals. And Grabe feels that this kind of framing reiterates the us against them attitude um, which fears otherness and makes the viewer feel safety and familiarity with the criminal justice system. Um, researchers who have looked sort of empirically at the institutional bias of news narratives, um, such as McChesney and Hall, uh, they explored how representations um that you see in like um true crime reinforce the norms of law and order um and this is achieved really through um sort of portraying crimes and criminals as like deviants and they function outside of the normative sort of institutional system um yeah, uh, true crime narratives, they've relied mainly on courts as sources, um, at least going back to like the 16th century, like I was saying before with um, 16th century, like Germany, um, and policing becomes uh, primary sources towards the early 20th century. Then you get like books like uh, Capote's um, and that relies on like testimonies by like police officers or prosecutors or investigators. Um, and McChesney and Hall argue that these narratives work towards maintaining the status quo of law and order and the criminal justice system. Um, true crime does invite the audience behind the closed doors of this system. And I think that's kind of what makes it quite appealing for people um, with Lineman saying that it enables viewers to, in quotes, imagine, produce and engage in the effective work of hatred, mourning, just judgment and vengeance as cultural practice. Uh, Phoebe, Phoebe Morton says that, in quotes, documentaries and the law make a well-suited pair. And this is because of four factors. So the first one is that criminal law uses simple concepts like good versus evil. And that's what you often see in true crime. The second one is that there are parallels between narrative structures. So um, just like in criminal trials, you have acts, um, accusation to evidence to judgment. You might see in like documentaries or film or TV series that you have the setup, the escalation to confrontation and then the resolution. Um, the third one is, I'm going to um, not say this properly because it's a French term, but um, evidence verity, Rachel, our sister who speaks French, um, was here, she'd be like, that's not right. Um, but I was going to say, Claire, this is what, this is what I'd think, why um, Crime Watch uh, scared you so much, and it did me as well when I was younger, because evidence verity um, is film footage film footage so it could be photos cctv of arrests criminals confessions and crime scenes and they're used a lot to kind of basically verify and make you believe in what you're watching and i think things like crime watch were 
all about sort of showing you the CCTV, showing you the um, e-fit of the person. It's making it really, really real. It's making the threat like, you know, sort of in your face. Um, and then the fourth factor is that both define truth as coming from persuasion and argument. Because um, the true crime documentary, whether you're aware of it or not, is trying to persuade you off their argument. And that's obviously what they do in uh, court. Uh, Morton says that choices about the style of documentaries can engage audiences of true crime. So one thing that I found really interesting um, was when she talks about the presence of presenters. So documentaries with presenters are often criticised for being biased or misleading. Um, an example she gives is Piers Morgan's psychopath documentaries, where he clearly has a view on psychopaths and he has a view on the criminal, he's a view on the case and he kind of just doesn't, isn't open to challenge about it. Um, but I also think that this could also be the case for documentaries without a clear presenter or narrator um, because at the end of the day any documentary is written and edited um, whether you see that presenter or not. Um, Morton argues that presenter-led or narrated documentaries actually benefit from the visible emotions of a presenter because it acts as a reminder to the audience that documentaries are constructions of a reality and this transparency invites the audience to challenge the presenter's take on the subject, whereas documentaries without a presenter are perceived are perceived and stylized as being more objective because the victims or those who were there, i.e. police officers, social workers, families, they're telling the story. So the audience are inclined to believe that what they're hearing and watching is the truth rather than a construction of what happened, but it's likely still a construction because like I said, it's written by an edited by someone. So I suppose making a murderer is the most famous of this kind of structured sort of series um true crime documentary um on netflix anyway and it also started this trend towards trying true crime series without a narrator so yeah i was just going to ask um first of all if you've got any thoughts on what i've said there claire but also before i just go into a bit about making a murderer i just wanted to know what you think about making a murderer because one i can barely remember it and two if i'm remembering correctly you've watched the second series but i might be wrong Okay, over to you. Yes, I agree with um, your points about where true crime is and um, why we're kind of um, drawn to it. Um, I think when you were talking about like deviance and stuff, um, I think it also like allows us to maybe play out I'm not saying that like everybody's like oh my fantasy is to be a criminal and stuff but I think it allows us to kind of like play out certain things that we might try to like hide like in our own um psyche like just like thoughts that might be quite deviant or whatever like we get to think about them um and we get to like maybe discuss them with people and also it makes you sort of when you watch these it makes you sort of like think that you're not as bad as them or um 
stuff like that. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Can I just ask a weird question? Um, yeah. Like, do you ever feel like, say you're watching a true crime documentary and say you get really grossed out by a bit that you're watching or something, do you feel that, oh, thank God? What do you mean? Just, like, <laughs> because sometimes I'm like, you know how like there's that thing, I think you mentioned it before, that, you know, we could be, become quite desensitized to crime and what we see and stuff and I'm like oh I've watched quite a lot of like true crime I've listened to like I've read maybe like books like In Cold Blood or you've listened to podcasts and you're like it would be quite bad if we just watched all this and you didn't feel grossed out at times because at least then you're still there's still that bit in you that's like oh I definitely wouldn't do what they just did because you know you're yeah of course absolutely yeah um yeah 100% 100% like I would feel like just as I'd feel very worried about myself if I watched these things and was like oh yeah that, that doesn't affect me um but I think there's I know this isn't quite what you were just talking about but I think there's something for me quite like paradoxical about um true crime because um it goes it depends on the type of true crime you're talking about which isn't really I would say the type that making a merger is but maybe the types um that you might go into this later uh that are like about you know the really really sensationalist ones the really like gruesome and gory ones that like revel and going into detail about you know certain murderers like crimes or something like that um you know they talk about like if if they were doing it from the point of view of the criminal themselves they kind of like talk about everyone's interested in motive that's like i would say that's like all we're drawn to whether you try to whether these documentaries or not try to focus on the victims they will always go into motive because that's what people want to know um and i think they especially it was quite I don't want this to sound in bad taste, but it's just in light of the, you know, like another school shooting in like America and stuff. Um, I sort of went on to look at like a lot of true crime related to that just because of that, which again in itself quite is quite jarring for me to do. But um, they would talk about like their motives and they'd be like, oh, you know, these shooters or whomever or, or murderers, if you want to like put it into that, um, they did it because of this reason and they were like really obsessed with with um you know like murderers or crimes or they were obsessed with like really dark sort of strange sort of things and then you're sort of like sitting there like listening to that and choosing to listen to that and you're sort of like well they were sitting there reading that these murderers shooters whomever they're sitting there like like digesting all of that and being obsessed with it and we we're like oh that clearly meant like there was you know when they, they they talk about like video games and I'm not saying that these aren't bad influences but then you look at yourself and you're like but I'm also sitting there obsessing over this it's like I'm in the same position here what makes and, and I'm not saying like people who sit and watch true crime that means they're going to go out and do these acts but you're sort of just like that's one of the warning signs that you know something's wrong with these people like you talk about like you know like their psychopathy and stuff and you're like well, we're also doing it ourselves, which is quite worrying. Um, and 
maybe that's like you know have like when we watch true crime maybe that's to like feed that sort of curiosity or something as well like to dull it a bit I'm not sure um sorry I don't want to make you lose your place um but also just on that um I was listening to this other podcast where they were just talking about what happened in Uvalde and um they were saying that Obviously, when these things happen in America, these mass shootings happen in America, they, they, the, the conversation very quickly goes into talking about like whether you should ban guns or, you know, there should be more gun control or, you know, um, all the laws around that. Um, and they were like, but actually, you should be discussing um, sort of what's led, like what, what leads these people to do these things. And because they were like, we have to understand whether it's like, is there warning signs that someone is is um isolating themselves or you know having these thoughts or making these plans or are they putting messages on social media that are sort of hinting towards it and things like that because often when these things happen people will go oh they post because i'm pretty sure he did post like they post videos maybe saying that they're going to do a shooting at some point um so i don't know but i always wonder if like our fascination with like say for example like perpetrators of crimes like mass shootings um maybe our fascination is to understand it to then learn lessons from it but you always hear that and I'm like but I don't feel like you do learn anything I think people I think people are just just fascinated about understanding like that person's person doing it but I don't know whether people are actually learning anything from like true crime and also sorry one last thing but just because I realised I'm not going to talk about it later on, so I was like, that's such a good thing that you brought it up. Um, that, uh, like, another p- thing that people will say that they watch true crime for, especially women, because women are the largest group of consumers of true crime, is they'll always say that they want to learn about, like, defence, you know, because they, they will get attacked maybe in the street or whatever, and it makes them more alert to it. And I'm like, I don't want to argue with that because if that's what some women, you know, do feel, then fine. But I can't say that from listening to crime, I've ever learned anything that's actually said, this is how the victim can protect themselves. Because no. one, if you did that in a documentary, that would be like victim blaming because it would be basically saying, well, the victim should have done something else. But then also... That's not how true crime documentaries are sort of written and 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 made and discussed. Exactly, and... they would they would come across as preachy and they would come across as very like self righteous and that you know this happened and this means you should do this and this and this to stop that and it would become educational and that's not what true crime is. Um, and I also think it's interesting as well, like how and I know you say like women and I'm not I'm not saying that women aren't criminals, but well, I have, I'm not even going to say it because I have no statistics to back this up, so I'm not even going to say it. But I also think, regardless of gender, like, you could be watching this, you could be watching all this true crime, and you have no idea if that's putting that into someone who's susceptible to these sorts of ideas. You don't know if that's given them some inspiration, if it's given them an, an outlet for an obsession to go and and be really interested in this and to be fascinated by it and to want to carry out something similar that could be happening because they say that you know they they talk about video games and they're like oh violent video games but they don't talk about true crime documentaries 
they would say they're even worse you know you've got that thing with like the joker um it wasn't joker the film that just came out with Wack Quinn. Phoenix. Phoenix. That's it. Yeah, it was the Dark um, Knight Rises. Yeah, it was Dark Knight Rises. The Dark Knight, the Dark Knight, I think. Or was it the Dark yeah. Knight Rises? I think it was the no. Dark Knight Rises that he did it, but it was the Dark yes, Knight Rises. Yes, that he about. was watched. Yeah. And he obviously, and don't get me wrong, I think there's something really, um, oh, not charismatic, but definitely really like powerful and alluring in a really mysterious sort of way about um, Heath Ledger's take on the Joker. It's a great, it's a great, um, example of method acting he's great in it it's great character but again i'm not going to sit there and be like oh i'm going to like go carry that out but someone did someone watched that and thought oh great i'm going to go in and that's inspired me to go and carry out that shooting in that cinema inspired by jokers the the, the joker um so you don't know what the harmful effects are of these and i think a lot of true kind things especially like documentaries and stuff like they position themselves like oh well we're just you know um shedding light on what's happening in the world as if they're doing us like a public service by telling us these things like you say from this really um objective unbiased position and like you said they're not and I know that like mentioning crime watch and i don't mean to i just don't have any other point of reference because what i'm really trying to get from is like the really really news and factual presentation of true crime and the really really sensationalist narrative driven view of true crime and i feel like when you have a sort of talking heads documentary where it's like with a presenter and stuff like is that a talking heads one that's really not though is it because the talking heads one's still just like experts and witnesses and stuff, isn't it? Okay, presenter led. I would say that's more like factual in the sort of crime watch sense. Um, and these other ones that we are more accustomed to now where there's no presenter. Um, like you say, like people can, and I, I make that mistake, you know, you make this mistake where all they're doing is outlaying their facts and there's there's no agenda there. How could how could there be? No one's no one's put, we can't put a face to that or a name to that I don't know like but someone's like you say someone's producing it someone's someone's constructing it and scripting it and editing it and that's exactly what an author does like or a presenter does and you know you don't know what like their agenda is and I remember when the latest uh Jimmy Savile documentary came out on Netflix and I think you're going to bring it up later but that sort of um falls into that sort of weird area of contention about this and, and the sort of like agenda behind it and stuff. And if you're going to go into it later, I'll leave it for then. But um, yes, yeah, a good example of that. Um, but yeah, to just go back to what you were going to say quickly about making a murderer. Um, I think making a murderer straddles the line between quite factual and very, very like fictional sensationalism it was almost like making a murderer for me was like my introduction to that type of true crime I would before making a murderer I would never have said that I'm a true crime fan I I, I associated true crime with I'm, I'm gonna say it for the hundredth time right and you can just like count how many times you say crime watch associated <laughs> true crime with crime watch <laughs> or it was like the really like trashy cable like you know like 
all those like police shows and stuff that are on those random channels. That that's what true crime was for me. And then when Making a Murderer came on, and it was like you were really getting to grips with like this one case, and and it was presented, and I've forgotten his name, the main guy. That's really bad. Avery. Avery. Stephen Avery. You saw him, and you saw that he was presented, and you saw every little detail, and you really like got to know him as if he was like this main character. You're oh, I'm rooting for him, and and it was just like I really want to know what happens to this guy, and and can and, I? And it was happening in real time, and that just like made it even more like intriguing, and yeah. Could I ask you a favor? Mm-hmm. Um. Because I'm going to just like explore it a little bit, but because I can't remember it, um, could you give like a brief summary of? Uh, can you remember what happened to him? No. <laughs> I mean, I it's been so 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 long since I've watched the first Making a Murder that I the the case um really confuses me. But I think the crux of it was there was this reporter she was a reporter journalism some journalist or something like that and she turned up at his I don't know if they they sell cars or something like this I need to look this up and she turned up and she'd be in contact with them to to get this car from like auto trader or something or to she -hmm. wanted to buy a new car and they had it listed something like this I know some of them something's involved with that anyway they find her car like at his or near his or something her I I actually remember the car was like a RAV a Toyota RAV or something like that I think um and had like you know all this forensic evidence in it and a lot of it like linked to Avery and from then you know they said that he did it but then there was a lot of like inconsistencies with the forensic evidence and a lot of people were like, oh, no, he's just been framed because he previously was in prison because he got falsely accused of rape. Um, and I think from then, you know, they were like, he fits the profile. Um, he obviously did it. And a lot of the evidence like linked to him. But then I don't think that it was carried out well in the first instance. I don't think they even looked at a lot of forensics. Okay, so I don't think the forensic evidence did actually um, pin him. I think the point was that they didn't look at the forensics and they were just like, he was right place, right time. He, used to, he was in jail before. He clearly did this. Boom, he did it, right? And then in his previous trials where they went back, they went to look at like all the evidence and, you know, they done a lot of forensics and they found that like none of it matches or it matched to someone else. And I'm sure at some point, was it his son or his brother or someone, someone in the Avery family um, or his nephew, I think it was his nephew also got involved in it as well. Like there was evidence that he was involved in it. I don't know if there was blood or something, some forensics that tied him into it. There was this whole big thing that sprawled out and sprawled out. And then we got to see him get like a new defense team. We got to see our lawyer and she she heard in like the latest season of it, she heard about the case because of making her murderer. So like it got really meta as well because like she only wanted to get involved because it was a documentary. Uh, just like it was the whole thing that that was happening in real time I think that made making a murderer so big it was like 
the public are actually like helping solve the crime that's what it felt like you felt like by you watching that you were helping to free this man like like you could sign a petition like to free him and there was loads of stuff about that and you see that a lot now with things especially with the rise of like true crime podcasts and stuff and investigative journalism like that it's like we're all just like these wee like um investigators like armchair investigators I think that's what they call them or something like that yeah that's a good summary of um making a murder um yeah it's been a long time since I watched it um so yeah the making a murderer was released by Netflix on the 18th of December 2015 so I probably watched it in like 2016 yeah um, and in one analysis in early 2016, it was estimated that within its first 35 days, an average of 19.3 million people watched each episode in America. Making a murderer made explicit use of the evidence variety, again, butchering that, um, from interviews with key witnesses, family members, and even phone call interviews uh with the suspect Avery so yeah um it very much sort of relied on having lots of different types of evidence to kind of like to make its argument I suppose um the quality and style of the show as well as the access it had to such information helped the audience to trust that the documentary was authentic and feel as though they and for the audience to feel as though they were watching true events as they happened unfiltered but like i was saying just before no matter whether this is a visible whether there's a visible presenter or not documentaries are still constructed by the filmmakers and making a murderer is ultimately a series that is asking the audience to participate and judge all decisions made by the criminal justice system in the case lark walsh argue that argues that the filmmakers construct stephen and brendan avery as good characters at least enough for the audience to feel emotionally engaged in their outcomes audiences swept up in the making a murder hysteria were criticized at the time as merely as merely letting Netflix tell them what to think but Lark Walsh says that this does not really afford viewers with enough credit and you know autonomy um, and many factors could be at play uh, for why audiences really took to making a murderer and a huge one could certainly be viewers who have had a negative experience with the American justice system and therefore they already don't have faith in the law so they're much more likely to believe that an injustice by the law enforcement could happen so that could be why you know they were already on board with making a murderer it's not just that the filmmakers sort of coerce the audience into believing it through their you know editing choices um, I wonder if, though, there, there's something in this to explain the sort of appetite for true crime, particularly against like elites and powerful institutions, which I think you're seeing more and more of these days. Uh, so the champion more, I think, like, you know, years ago, maybe in like, the 90s and the 80s, I think there was a lot of stigmatization of like class and criminality. But now I think it's maybe like the other way around and we more sort of champion that, not champion like criminality, but like, you know, you're willing to believe that like it's the elites that's they're actually corrupt and they're the ones that are, that are maybe like um 
falsely accusing people or you know stuff like that um another popular netflix true crime series is one that again i haven't seen so you have um it's conversations with a killer the ted bundy tapes and that was released in 2019 and this looked at the crimes of serial killer ted bundy paying attention to bundy's victims but also the social context of the time in which he carried out his crimes bundy was always considered something of a handsome genius and conversation with a killer argues and critiques this as a media fueled image from like the tabloids and newspapers at the time um, many reviews were critical of conversations with a killer, with some viewers thinking it only added to the so-called lure of Ted Bundy. Uh, Rob Harvilla wrote for The Ringer in 2019 that there is some pocket sociology here, though not much. The 70s are, 70s are described as an angry era that birthed such all-American monsters as the Son of Sam, the Hillside Stranglers and John Wayne Gacy. And he goes on to say that there are flashes of porn pornography that sneak into the mix later on. So basically, he feels that the show is overstylized and it actually lacks in any new substantive substantives or takes or evidence or you know, like their academics sort of like readings to the case. Um, Rachel McCabe in 2021, however, discusses how conversations with a killer uses the tapes of Bundy to actually show him as a shallow sociopath as opposed to this genius. And yeah, and that far from being someone, even they, they I think in that documentary, or at least this is what like I've read, that the documentary makers are trying to show that like he, you know, so Ted Bundy at that time, for his class, the fact he was a man, he was white, he had a lot of like privilege, but um, the the documentary's kind of shown that like he didn't necessarily use it in a way because he was genius. It was just because like that's what he had. If you know what I mean, like he wasn't like really good at what he did in particular. It was just because he happened to be like this sort of like the privilege that he could hide in his kind of normalcy. If you know what I mean, and also. He sort of benefited off the off of the back of the negligence of institutions who failed to apprehend him. So it wasn't necessarily that he was a genius. It was just that like all these other factors were at play, and that's like the social context around him. Um, so yeah, once again though, we should always sort of keep in mind that the filmmaker again will have constructed the episodes to drive home this narrative. So they've got access to all this material. You don't know what they're cutting out. You don't know what like you know. Yes, you can hear those tapes, and yes, that does authenticate all of what you're watching, but you always have to bear in mind that there'll be certain decisions made about what content is kept within these documentaries and what content isn't. Um, I suppose there are quite a lot of distinctions between making a murderer and conversations with a killer. They're very different types of uh, true crime documentaries. But one that stands out to me really is that one is about a current case at the time of recording, which would be making a murderer. And then the other one is an is a historic solved case. Um, and I've been thinking about what the benefit is of revisiting crimes that are historic and that are solved. And I suppose one benefit, if you like, of true crime is that it can help provide new information, evidence, or even just tell stories um, that have never been told before. But I just wonder then, what is the point in going over, say, Bundy's crimes again, other than to basically revel in the psych psych 
psychopathy, sorry, of the killer. Is that not then just like pure voyeurism? Um, Haggerty views serial killing as a byproduct of the modern life and how it is more and more anonymous. Haggerty argues that this anonymity, can never say that word properly, leads to a so-called society of strangers where serial killers can hide in their presentation of normality. Serial killing combines modern features of celebrity and crime. And certainly the, the category of celebrity has emerged to include almost anyone, even infamous killers like Brady and Myra Hindley. Uh, the Moors murders at the time in Britain um, were heavily reported by the British media. And Cummins in 2019 has written about this and said that one way of seeing the media response to these crimes was to view it as a darker side to the swinging 60s. The 60s were a time when the culture of celebrity emerged. Um, and Rojek in 2001 um, gives an explanation for the emergence of celebrity as a public preoccupation. Um, sorry, he gives an explanation for this emergence of celebrity as a public preoccupation and, you know, like the public being like really like sort of amazed and, you know, like admiring celebrities. And he says that. This is because of the democratization of society, the decline in organized religion, and the commodification of everyday life. Um, whilst I guess his work does provide an attempt to explain the rise of celebrity culture in the late 20th century, the features identified are already recognized as being at play in the 1960s, which was the period in which Brady and Hindley committed their crimes. So I think there is always this nature of like, criminals especially serial killers whether they are doing what they do because yes they could uh, they, they could be uh like psychopath right they could have like mental health problems and you could argue that anyone if you, if you if you kill someone or if you're a serial killer and you know you do it with intent then you have to be like mentally ill but that's a whole different debate but yeah there could be elements of that but then also, they could just be doing it or, you know, alongside that, they could be doing it for just seeking infamy. Like, that could be a huge um, reason for, for committing these kind of crimes. Um, and that's certainly what you get a lot with copycat killers, um, is that search for infamy. Um, so, yeah, the incorporation of serial killers into the modern category of celebrity is part of the transformation of violent crime into a cultural and entertainment product. So there is a symbiotic relationship between crime and media. Um, violent crime is generally seen as uh, newsworthy and when there is a really violent crime that happens you will see it extensively covered in the news. Take for example as you were saying like um, mass shootings. Um, yeah so yeah it's just interesting to think about like how um sort of news has i mean it's kind of like going back to what you were saying that whether the news or these kind of true crime documentaries or programs 
whether they are actually helping by constantly going over a crime, if you know what I mean. Um, and I think that has been something that's been said, particularly about like mass shootings and whether it should constantly be on like the front page, for example. Like that's a huge that's a huge thing with Columbine. Um, I know that there was like criticism of the fact that just any any new little detail was right on the front pages because it sold it sold papers. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, just because it's really really to what the point you were going to make. Um, there was a campaign, you know, with that Aurora shooting, the one I was talking about in the cinema. There was a campaign by like some of the victims' families. It was a no notoriety campaign, so they came. They wanted to campaign for no news coverage of the perpetrator because a for like fear of other people wanting to commit the same crime and b for infamy you know like why should they get that they should be anonymous it should just be like this happened these are the victims and we should get no more details yeah and you know what i find weird right that's probably a really stupid point to make right but and I agree with this. There are journalistic like standards for um, talking about suicide and death, and you're never supposed to mention the methods of suicide. And that's like I've always been aware of that. Like that's in like sort of like fiction books and um, newspapers, just anything. You shouldn't really mention how the person does it. Yeah just willingly like I'll just like say like how the person like killed this person to the fine detail and I like it's so odd to me because the whole point of not not disclosing how someone kills himself is because you don't want someone to copy it but I'm like well why would you then do that about any sort of killing don't know just as a side point um do you mind if I just carry on for a bit or okay I will carry on uh so Susanna Menace looks at the role of the media in reproducing and repeating violence as entertainment. To do this, she looks at two documentaries um, that came out about Jimmy Savile. Now, I think I did say to you that I was going to talk about Jimmy Savile. I'm not talking about the Netflix one, but after I've mentioned this, then we can go back to maybe what you were going to say about that. But I just wanted to mention this first. Um, yeah. Uh, and she's basically looking at how these documentaries help construct an ideal victim. Historically, certain victims of sexual crimes have been denied recognition or protection, particularly sex workers. I think many modern true crime documentaries have challenged this perspective, but Menace argues that the media commodifies victims as objects of entertainment. Menace examines the ITV 2020 documentary Exposed, the other side of Jimmy Savile, and the BBC 2016 documentary Abused, the untold story, and both hint towards the BBC's culpability culpability of of not doing anything about Savile when he was alive uh, researchers have described ideal victims as those who perceived are perceived as deserving particular social empathy and recognition by the government and society Christie in 1986 identified several personal attributes which might make the victim ideal in cultural terms and these are often linked to vulnerability, weakness in comparison to the offender um, and the idea, the general sense that this victim has done nothing wrong to you know, warrant an attack. Um, generally children, the elderly and women conform to these attributes um, 
of an animal victim. Uh, the media's role as a kind of conduit, I suppose, of perpetuating this is often not given enough attention. Um, but Prez D uh, in 2000 suggests that in our neoliberal culture, the way we perceive our moral social environment has much to do with the way the media contextualize and assimilates popular knowledge into the culture. So basically, like the media at the end of the day, like if you take something like Netflix, they want an audience and they need to create a demand for it. And this might be difficult in historic or cold cases where the threat is no longer prevalent. So one way of doing this for them, like to create that demand, is to escalate a crime problem so that it is recast as a scandal. Greer and McLaughlin explain that scandalizing news increases profit through a surge in scandalized consumers. And um, another way for like to, to really make that scandal successful is to elicit in people this deep cultural kind of like unease um and that's certainly what happened with the jimmy savile case um in terms of the savile case menace writes that the scandal provided one predominant narrative given that savile dead um also the cohen the coincidence yeah of having like several other celebrity sex offense allegations like um Max Clifford and uh, Gary Glitter, Rolf Harris and all that. Um, they emerged around the same time um, under Operation Nutrie, if I've got that right. Um, around the same time, yeah, and meant that the construction of a crime problem and hence a big scandal could not have been easier for them. Um, secondly, these documentaries are constructed like a de facto trial, hearing the victim's testimonies, yet if the perpetrator were alive, then the trial would be heard away from the public in a court of law, and you would not be able to talk about it like you have until the decision has been made, because it would all be conjecture. Um, Menace argues, in quotes, the documentaries gave the impression that their purpose was to show that justice is being done after all, but I by drawing upon multiple victim stories and enlarging each story so as to focus on the Savile experience. The documentaries promoted the idea that the problem is institutional rather than social. Indeed, by deflecting responsibility, the public could see itself as a victim of the system too, rather than part of the problem. Hence, the documentaries and ensuring media coverage skillfully guided the public's sensitivities by tapping into our fears and sustaining the demand for real crime entertainment." End of quote. Of course, it's quite clear that Savile was guilty, and I'm by no means saying it wasn't a, you know, a really awful crime and case. Um, but I'm not talking really here about the specific cases, but rather the media's capitalization of like true crime as entertainment. Um, in a study by Hall, they looked at um, how crime was reported in Britain by journalists um, and how often it relied on sources from institutions like police or courts or government agencies or even things like, you know, in the Tavo case, the BBC, more heavily than any other areas of the news. So it's kind of coming from like one source. Like you have to, like if you don't have faith in the, say, criminal justice system, it's all, all the information is coming from the criminal justice system, if that makes sense. Um, in Surette's study of 
like similar reporting in America, found that many different institutions and individuals acted as gatekeepers in the typical reporter's information gathering process. So the person accused of the crime was rarely, if ever, directly acted accessed before stories were produced. Um, the stories and therefore the representations of the reality of crime are almost wholly produced from the definitions and perspectives of the institutional primary definers. So it's yeah, it's all coming from this one perspective of like the institutions. Um, those accused of the crimes are not considered legitimate sources of truth and therefore counter definitions are almost always absent and dominant definitions command the field of significantly of significance and they're relatively unchallenged although i guess that's kind of changed now with the landscape of netflix and such um and i suppose the biggest challenge to this kind of mainstream reporting of true crime through like institutions is podcasting and Stella Bruzzi classified an emerging genre of contemporary true crime documentaries as being serialized nonfiction. And this would include shows like Making a Murderer. This phenomenon is um, increased by yeah, streaming platforms where there is this availability to, to consume something um, by binging it with this you know, rapid appetite to uh, talk about a show and discuss it on online forums or social media it give fans like places to even like look for clues or like swap theories um and i'm just going to go on and talk about true crime podcasts and, and then that's me but i just wanted to see if you had anything you wanted to add there Claire. um yeah um, I think just the thing that you were talking about with Ted Bundy is that with him specifically, that was it. I think he got criticised for this as as well. Is he was a narcissist, so he looked for infamy, and that's exactly what he wanted. And he told people specifically that that's what he wanted. Um, and I think like the way he did his crimes as well just fed into that. So the fact with that specifically that they made the documentary that played his tapes played into his hands. Like that's exactly what he would have wanted. So I think that's a point of contention for sure. Um, and, and even if there's killers out there who don't, come out and say oh I wanted like infamy or or I want people to talk about me and to know me and whatever um like you've said and I think that exists that that like need for a legacy to make your sort of mark like whatever we do like we're playing into their hands as much as we don't think we are when we watch these or make these um documentaries stories whatever and like after the Ted Bundy documentary, you know, they released that film with Zac Efron that was like called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. And um, when that came out, or at least when they, they announced that they were making it, there was like this big uproar that they'd cast Zac Efron. Now, I know you don't need to be typecast, but we all know when actors are known for a certain thing and Zac Efron does not look bad. He's a good looking guy. And the types of films that he's been in prior have... He's he's known for 
being a heartthrob, if you want to call him that. So to cast him in a film as Ted Bundy, you're subliminally, even if you're not aware of it, you're saying that he is a good-looking guy and someone that women or men alike, people would want to look up to and who would perhaps find attractive in some shape or form. Um, even the, the title of the film, I didn't even realise this was the full title, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. I mean, it's almost as if they're trying to justify why they're making the film to remind you, oh, this is about something that's really bad. And equally, though, it's like they're trying to, like, like it's like, how many adjectives can we get in that film title to show that it's really, like, exciting and it's 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 really gruesome and it's really sensationalist oh let's put in about like five do you know what I mean like it's it's like they're they know exactly what they're doing and playing into certain audiences um and again like you've you've mentioned um you know that's just like a whole thing now is like you know tying celebrity and crime together um, and as much as you don't think that they are, like, the, like, we, we know a lot of names, like, I say we, like, generally speaking, a lot of people, even if they're not true crime fans, will know a lot of names of really notorious, like, criminals. And interestingly, like, I was just thinking, you don't hear a lot about, like, the victims, because, and I mean this in the most respectful way I can, but people only really care about the perpetrator because they want to understand their motives because that's what's interesting. The only one I can think of, the only time I think a victim, and it goes without saying because we don't know the perpetrator, but the only time the victims are, I think, is people who go missing. And it's not necessarily the victim themselves, it's the fact that we don't know and we want to know. And you know, like everybody knows Madeline McCann and she was a victim and I know maybe you could argue that it comes from like, you know, what happened was it the parents and everything like that. But but there's a whole other story about Adler McCann's <laughs> uh, always in the news and stuff. But I won't go into it because it's a totally different thing. But I was just thinking, you know, there's not a lot of times where you can recount the victims, but you can recount the criminals. And I think missing cases are always that. And it's just it's just purely that, because, again, it's, it's the mystery involved in it. It's the intrigue of it. Um, and I think that true crime and especially with missing missing people like it just encourages a lot of people to become like I was saying before like armchair detectives and to try and like figure out these things themselves and I think I know you're going to go into podcasts and I think podcasts are a real thing like that like because you can do a lot of them in like real time but then I I think a lot of them are investigative and I quite like them for that. But I was just thinking of like, you know, that documentary or what was it on Netflix? It was like, sorry for the language, but it was like, don't fuck with cats. Like it was basically just like armchair detectives. What, what was the crime? I can't remember. Do you remember it? Yeah, it's quite a shocking case. It's the guy who killed the student and he like, yeah. put him in like a suitcase or something. Yeah. He also like killed animals. Exactly. I know, I'm not laughing at the crimes. I'm not no, laughing no, I know, at that. I know. But it's just 
when I saw that, obviously that is quite a, a grabbing like title because you're like, oh my god, what does that mean? But it was just like these like amateur like detectives. I mean, they weren't they were just people sitting at home being like, you know, I'll do like a crossword. Oh, I found this person missing. I'm just gonna go on Facebook and start looking this up and stuff. And guys, it to them. They basically helped the police figure it out because you know, like we've said, going back to like lane of duty and stuff, the police might not be any good. So yeah, why not? But at the end of the day, I feel like it's just encouraging so many people to get involved in things that like they don't necessarily have the the skills or information to do if that makes sense like I find it really weird that true crime sort of straddles that line between like fiction and then we're also like actually like involved in it it's it's really weird there's like no boundary there um I just find that really odd um and it's the same with that one that Cecil Hotel documentary where that women just sort of like vanish it turns out she didn't vanish she like she I think she had like a mental illness Mm -hmm. in the water tank yeah and she sort of like fell into it so it was like a freak accident almost but again it was people who were just and it wasn't necessarily because they'd seen like a documentary stuff it was people it, it went around a lot on like online on like forums and on like places like reddit and stuff and then a lot of people wanted to try and figure out what happens and a lot of like internet sleuths that's what they're called they they figured it out um and again i'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing i just find it really interesting that like there's people like out there like doing that like solving crimes when they're not the police um just find that really interesting it's like it's just like moved from like entertainment to like real life and it's it's like one minute you're like watching it and the next minute you're like going to be like in court about it or something or like you're talking to the police about something that you've you've investigated it's just a really weird boundary how we've got to that sort of stage now um yeah and then I was just going to say that um Again, my issue with documentaries as well with the whole infamy thing is uh, the Anna Delvey. It's there's an example in the Anna Delvey um, doc. No, not documentary. Wasn't documentary. It was a um, fictionalized series about Anna Delvey, the the fraudster who um, pretended she was like a German heiress um, and conned a lot of people out of money and stuff. Um, like she wanted notoriety. She wanted infamy. She wanted to make money and she did because everyone bought her story and they kind of basically forgot about the victims of it. They ran her story. They, they ran a not, that Netflix series about it. It was really successful. She's still in prison. She's earning loads of money from it. She earned a massive cut from them uh, making that because she obviously had to sell the rights to it and give them that. So they've just played exactly into her hands. And, you know, the whole thing was about her conning people out of money and they've just given her money it a really weird paradox um and then just to go kind of like full circle we've seen it we've seen we've seen this whole thing like you know how you say like true crime is basically like a court and you're playing out this sort of like drama well like I feel like it's just like summed up in what's just happened with like the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial like we are literally like now 
watching a proper court case which is a domestic violence case which is quite serious and we watch it and we consume it as fiction like like we as in the general public have just like watched that week on week day on day like getting updates as if you're watching like the next episode and basically becoming like judge judy and executioner as you watch it you know like i don't know if that trial would go how would have went a different way had like the public not been so vocal about it and have been so involved in it and it have been like an open court and stuff and i'm i'm or I'm not had gonna... the people not been celebrities well yes it, it, of course yeah i know there's definitely that to it but you just wonder like where does it end now like is this just going to be a thing now because apparently when i was reading about it because it's a is it a defamation case or a live what's it is it defamation um it's defamation yeah they apparently weren't like there were never ever serious cases like you got them all the time but like a lot of people would settle them out of court because they were like i don't want this dragged up i'll just take whatever settlement i can get and it's not going to go to court because who wants their like dirty laundry aired like that but they did and and it's got to the point now where it's like over like sensationalized and now like I was listening to something about it and they were saying that more and more people who are going through them who would previously have said oh no I'll settle out of court and maybe celebrities um like they are there's another case that's happening um oh yeah it's the Marilyn Manson one they were going to settle that out of court and they're thinking now because of what's happened with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard they're going to actually do it as an open like court thing because they've seen how basically that whole trial got turned on its head just because of public opinion and they're like that could do the same for that and we've seen it on a very like by the way this is like a more like trivial scale but you know the Wagatha Christie case that's happening now between Rebecca Vardy and what's her what's her name Colleen Rooney um yeah. again it's, it's it's not on the same level it's not like abuse or anything like that it's a really stupid case um but it's basically defamation um sort of case that's been played out in the court like that and they'll be doing it because they know on the back of that they're getting some publicity and I know I'm going off topic but I just feel like the way the true crime's gone and the way that like it's slowly slowly moving from like news to fiction to like like a blood of and a mix of both and then we're like actually getting involved in it in like real time and actually making a difference to these cases it's just like where does it end like like it it's like just it's just all for show it's just all for like entertainment yeah so um I agree with what you're saying yeah I think um there is a huge problem between the sort of I don't know blurring off the lines between celebrity pop culture and true crime fiction it's all just kind of like a meshed um and it's maybe distracts from you know the tragedy and seriousness that is at the heart of any true crime because at the end of the day a crime's been committed and there's a victim or victims so um, yeah I feel like it's gone past the point of like what its intention is to like show us it and be like oh it's bad I feel like it's now just like okay how bad can it get exactly it's like or, what's the next know, one like yeah, when's yeah. the next crime oh that and then when you hear a crime you're like oh the huge documentary literally um yeah so I guess like the big 
thing now is uh, podcasts and um, they kind of came into the mainstream I suppose in 2001 with Apple's creation of iPod um, and then since then they've just kind of gone from strength to strength really um, Williams, Rice and Rogers in 1988 described three dimensions of new media and then Bowling and Hull in 2018 they um, kind of reapplied this to podcasts and they said that the first one first dimension is interactivity so that's like the amount of control and a mutual discourse you have between the participants or the audience and the media um, and it's also about the viewers or the audience's ability to sort of choose what and when and how they interact with this media and consume it. The second dimension is demassification. So that's kind of like the viewer's ability to decide what portions of the media they want to consume. So using podcasts and examples as example, like audiences can select from like a huge list of podcasts um they can interact with creators throughout um and it's kind of really within their control um and then the third one third dimension is asynchronity which is defined as communication that in quotes allows for the ending and receiving of messages at a time convenient for the individual user so it's not like um television where or like you know like live broadcasting where you kind of you need to tune in at a certain time or even like record episodes or whatever like podcasts are just kind of like there and you can pick and choose from it whenever you want and you can do other things while you listen to them you know you could be like up for a walk in the house whatever you want to do um so it's all about kind of like putting the viewer at like their convenience at the center of it really um Podcast hosts often interact quite a lot with their audience members, um, especially in like true crime podcasts because they may include them in the sort of investigatory process. Um, true crime podcasts, they typically have like the most engaging marketing or um, sort of content or just fandom really than any other type of podcast. So True Crime Podcasts, they typically um, have really detailed websites. They might post like court documents that they get, case files, photos of evidence, um, and information about people related to the case. Um, so in that sense, it is a very um, participatory like relationship between the audience and the uh, podcast hosts. Um, Bowling and Hull in 2018 surveyed people who listened to true crime podcasts. The survey was posted on social media sites. They made use particularly of like Reddit, um, where because the strongest presence of like true crime audiences was on Reddit at that time. Um, the majority of participants were aged between 18 and 34, so that's like 62% of them, and 73% of them were female, 89% were white. So key findings were that true crime podcast users are heavier users than the average podcast listener, um, with 60% listening five or more hours a week. 
uh, women were more likely to listen to true crime, true crime podcasts than men for social interaction to escape and because they have stronger voyeuristic tendencies. So, yeah, it's quite funny that, like, interesting, I suppose, that females kind of, women kind of, like, listen to it almost like escapism. And I can sort of relate to that, but you're like, that's really weird because by its nature, true crime is realism because it's meant to be about something that really happened. So quite strange. Um, yeah, recently there's just been this mass sort of explosion, I suppose, in true crime podcasting. Um, and there is a lot of competition between podcasts um, to you know have like the most detailed sort of new information on cases uh, to find sort of different cases um, and have all these sort of different you know methodological approaches and things like that to the cases that they're talking about um, and also just to you know to have like that kind of journalistic legitimacy and authenticity to their podcast because that's kind of what audiences are looking for the most if, if they're looking for like a new true new true crime podcast to listen to the most famous of all the true crime podcasts is obviously serial um and that's where um true crime podcasts started um and serial was it sounds like i'm saying like cereals and like what you might find some not <laughs> Um, it's S E R I A L. Um, so yeah, it, it launched in October two thousand and fourteen, um, and it very quickly became like a worldwide phenomenon. And it's the fastest podcast, it's fastest growing podcast ever. Um, yeah. Uh, basically, it's about so the podcast makers they were. It might not sound as innovative now because I think that's what like a lot of true crime podcasts do, but it was essentially like looking at like this crime and looking at this person and the evidence all leading up to it. And I think eventually it did lead to um, the suspect that they were talking about and they were like producing all this evidence for. I think they were like arrested, as far as I know. Um, Yeah, it even got because judges did mention um, episode, um podcasts like Serial and breakdown in decisions in new trials. Um, so they can be quite um influential. Um, and I think the the sort of power of these podcasts is that they challenge. The kind of conventional power relations like i was saying earlier where it's all because the narrative was normally controlled by sort of the powerful or the institutions um whereas now it's not really it's like anyone can kind of just do a podcast and if they can if they have the time and the energy you know to, to do the investigations and they can do it and then fandom spreads and and so on and so on um yeah, because many of the newer true crime texts or podcasts, they take their central narrative sort of thrust, if you like, from as as being sorry the prosecution prosecution of the prosecution, um, 
or it's all about deconstructing the evidence, the the um, sort of given narrative of a case, which is also similar to what happened with making a murderer. Um, Serial uh, demonstrated that true crime genres, that the true crime genre can kind of like, it can be quite powerful if like a lot of like ordinary people sort of like come together and look for evidence and discuss cases and it can actually have like some effect. Um, and I think that's, that was hugely, um, that inspired a lot of sort of copycat um, podcasts and I think it certainly helped with the um, explosion that we have seen of true crime podcasts um, yeah um, I don't have too much else to say about uh, true crime podcasts because I have listened to like the beginnings of Serial but I haven't stuck with it so again I'm, I, I don't know if I am necessarily the best person to talk about true crime as in like advocate for it because as much as I do watch stuff and listen to stuff about it I don't really engage with it to the point that I sort of I just kind of listen to it and then I put it off like I'm not going to go and join like a fandom and and look for clues or anything. I just kind of I listen. I, I want someone to solve it for me. I don't want to do any work. I just want to know what happens. And I'm like, right, that was an interesting hours lesson. Right, I'm done with that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Um, thoughts really. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't necessarily think that's to like true true crime you need to investigate true crime um i don't think they're synonymous with one another but um i think like i enjoy true crime podcasts i've got into them more recently um i've listened to quite a few i prefer like investigative ones so i prefer ones that aren't just retelling like crimes but like finding something out about them or like I've been listening to one called In the Dark, which sadly they've stopped making. They were supposed to make a season three of it, but they've decided not to. I'm not sure why. Um, it's a very good one. It's maybe the same as Serial, I'm not sure, but it's investigative. So, for example, in the season I was listening to the second one, it was like a guy had been going to trial for a crime. He'd went to trial like six times, and then the podcasters, they... We're looking back at the case and trying to see if they could help get him acquitted they ended up doing so um and like their evidence was used in his defense um so i think there's like a benefit to them and i know i sound a bit hypocritical because what makes them more qualified than people at home to do that it's essentially the same thing um and I think there are boundaries that can be blurred because I don't know when you listen to podcasts, do you think they're any more substantiated or, you know, do you trust them more than you would if you watched a documentary? Mm, I don't know. It depends because if I'm listening to one that's about a solved case, I'm just like, well, it's solved. So, But if I was listening to a podcast that was sort of investigating something that was ongoing, then 
I think I'm more picky about like say there was like three podcasts that were like discussing that particular case I'm more picky about maybe like who I'd choose and to be honest what would um sway my decision is probably the one that was most stylized I would imagine which sounds bad but probably would because be. you're almost like why would they be looking into this if they didn't have the evidence to do so what would they gain from mm. from that but they could make mistakes you know that could be potentially harmful to people involved in that mm. um you know there was another one I was listening to which was pretty it was it was pretty big like a lot of people listened to it and it and it influenced I think a lot of investigative podcasts called the teacher's pet um really interesting but you know long story short the guy this woman went missing and the, the his her husband was suspected of it but he never ever got arrested for it and she went missing in the 80s and in the podcast he, you know they've looked into it and the evidence is sound I think and you know they're they, they don't have the power to send this guy to prison or anything like that but they have the power to perhaps get more and more people to listen to it which again is a good thing of course it's a good thing and I'm not saying that this guy didn't do it but what if he didn't do it then they've basically started a witch hunt and I'm not ta- like specifically in that case I believe the evidence that they've said in it but you know in in other cases that might that might happen it might destroy certain lives um and you know they say that that's what the courts are for but then equally you know we've seen that the judicial system can be corrupt so they could also be offering a service that we would you, that people wouldn't get any other way and personally that's why i enjoy like those types of true crime podcasts but equally i'll sit and listen to ones that rehash like murders and stuff and when i listen to them i come away from them and i'm like why did i just listen to that Mm-hmm. like I feel like there's something a bit wrong with me if I do listen to them and I don't know what I'm getting out of it I mean it could just be general intrigue these things are interesting you know how depraved an individual can be can be interesting um, and that could be all it is Um. Mm-hmm. you know I'm listening I, I know I'm going into detail a lot about like the podcast I'm listening to but I just so happen to be listening to a lot of true crime podcasts at the moment. So I'm listening to one about catfishing at the moment. And this woman had been catfished for years. She'd been catfished for about 10 years. And it turned out that the person that was catfishing her was her was her um her cousin. Have you finally listened to Sweet Bobby? Yes! Is that the one you've been telling me to listen yeah. to? Oh, I must have forgot that recommendation. So yeah, yeah, I'm listening no, to that mad, podcast. So you know it's absolutely mad. Yeah. But then in when the podcaster is trying to um look at the motive behind the catfisher, it, they're sort of like struck by the fact that there is no motive. They've just decided to do it because they can do it. You know, and that that's really jarring because you're like, there must be a reason. Why would you do that to someone? just simply because you can do that to them mm. um you must have some vendetta against them or something or there must be something wrong in your psychopathy um but it's the same with maybe people that i'm not saying we're at that level but i'm just saying it's maybe the same as people that listen to this stuff and watch this stuff you just do it because you're interested in it 
It's the same, like, I say it all the time, but, you know, if there's an accident on the motorway, I would say about nine out of ten people will slow down and look at that. Mm-hmm. Maybe one, one out of ten will not even look at it and just drive on. You all want to see it. You all want to look at it. I think it's because there's something about about the exceptional, you know, we're all fascinated by the exceptional. Mm-hmm. And, well, put it this way, right? And we happen to be alive. Imagine it, like, just norm, basically born and everyone's a serial killer. And then you get this one new person who goes about and they're not a serial killer. You'd be like, oh, why is that person not going about killing people? Yes, exactly, exactly. I think that there's something about, like, people who go against the grain to such an extent. And that's maybe why we're so fascinated by criminals, because, and, and especially, like, you know, the worst of the criminals, like serial killers, for example, because not only are they doing something that is, like, against the grain but they're actively choosing to do it again and again yeah and there seems to be intent there because you know you could kill someone without intent but if you're a serial killer then you know you've got to imagine that like you know what you're doing and you're doing it because you want to do it um but of course i mean we are just by nature anyway like social beings like we live our lives like comparing ourselves to others and watching what others are doing and wanting to fit in and and so naturally we will be interested in in the human condition so I think that's what it in a way like boils down to Mm -hmm. and I think the media um podcasts uh news newspapers books whatever you want to call it um at the end of the day they know they need to sell and they know what sells and I think it I I like to sort of idea when I was reading about it of like selling something as scandal like old crimes as scandal because it's always like this new take and when you hear the word scandal it's like oh it's like gossip you know it's like something that like you're going to find out something new and um, I think again there's some sort of like fascination there as well to to find out something that like not everybody knew before um but yeah, I, I don't know. I I just, I wonder, like, if we will get a kind of, like, fatigue of true crime. And maybe we're already there because true crime has changed a bit, I would say, from what it was. Look at, in the terms of, like, what crime it's looking at, um, how it's maybe going more towards, like, institutions or financial crime um and then the class dynamic i think has changed quite a bit um the narratives around gender and stuff in true crime documentaries are maybe changing a bit um and personally like i find myself like fatigued by true crime like I don't really want to listen to it as much anymore i don't really want to watch it as much yeah i feel like intrigued like I, I remember like around about the time when making a murder came out and like all the years following that like anytime like a new series or something like it would come out on netflix it was like oh my god i'm gonna watch that i'm gonna binge it but now i'm like eh, i don't know yeah no i get that um i think the shock value is gone 
the more yeah. the more the more you get like True. the more you know of something and you're familiar with it then in a way you get desensitized to it and perhaps that is just what what's what's happening and like you say like I do think there's a shift towards like white collar crime especially within like popular culture and entertainment wise is what people are more drawn to and what people are more intrigued by perhaps that's the way it's going um but yeah I just think that's what it goes goes on is like intrigue and stuff and it's if we if we already know it and we already expect it then what can we say about it you know like it's almost mm. it's it's horrible and it's almost like oh another one but equally though like that's not like again I don't have statistics and I wish I did but I don't think like these crimes are like an absolute like I don't think they make up a large like like serial killers and stuff I don't think make up a large percentage of crimes they're probably quite small in the grand scheme of things so perhaps that is why they're intriguing because of the rarity and I know that it sounds weird to say the rarity because when you think of like hearing about them all the time you're like oh my god it's like a epidemic um but I'm pretty sure if you look at the statistics they're not they are relatively rare yeah um I'm not talking about like gun crimes but um Perhaps I'm wrong in that, but I do think that they are, and I think that's and it, equally why we're so intrigued by them. Yeah, and I think as well, it just going back to what you were saying earlier about, like, um, say for example, things like crime watch, right? I think there is something in what I was saying before as well about the otherness, and if you look at the type of crimes that are really um, popular, it's always crimes that are sort of, I would say, like have some kind of otherness about them one you've got serial killers they're quite other because they're rare right mm-hmm. and then you've got like um and i would say now you know i was saying like in that ne- at netflix right like they've been releasing a lot of like true crime about scams and sort of stuff like financial crime right or they're talking about institutional corruption, police corruption, or um, assaults that are done by uh, like the rich, the wealthy, and the powerful. Um, like you know, like your Jeffrey Epstein's and you know your Weinstein's and things. Um, and they've become really uh, like that kind of subgenre of true crime has become really popular for the last couple of years. And I can't help but feel that it's become really popular because it's, it's that kind of world and that kind of like wealth and power and lifestyle and class even has become more and more of an other because it's not attainable to people. And like, if you take, for example, in Britain, right. Um, Right now, we're living in, like, a crisis of, like, a living, a living, a cost of living crisis because, like, people are maybe poorer now and things. Um, So we don't want to see crimes like Crime Watch because that's really relatable. 
Mm-hmm. But we'll watch crimes about like the wealthy and the rich because that's other and it's safer to watch crimes about others than it is to watch crimes about things that could happen to you or that f- people you know could commit, if you know what I mean. Um, does that make any sense? Yeah. I think you're, you're, there is probably a trend. I think if you went and looked at that and examined it, there's probably, like, I think you said it earlier as well, there is there will be a trend with like true crime and like, what we what fascinates us because it's what what relates to us and I think I'd kind of said it before as well like it's almost like it plays out as some sort of like justification not justification but a vindication for the public so it's like if that's what we feel like is affecting our day-to-day lives now is you know like institution institutions and stuff like that then we will like to consume a lot of stuff that shows these people being held responsible for it so perhaps that's why we're more drawn to that in today's society equally though i'm not saying like because like a different crime went on and we're not we don't relate to it it wouldn't it would make news of course it would (laughs) but um yeah that's an interesting way to look at it Do you have anything else you want to add to it? No, no. There was only one documentary that I'd missed out talking about, but we've kind of moved past it. But it's just that, again, it's another Netflix documentary because Netflix has a lot to answer for, for the rise of true crime. Um, The Night Stalker documentary. I was going to mention that. Yes, I couldn't watch it. I mean, I watched it, but I couldn't finish it. It was horrendous. Like, that was one of, like, the scariest things. It's borderline, like, like actual horror. It's probably scarier than a lot of horror. And it should be, because obviously it's real. But the way it was made, just, oh, so scary. And I think it's scary, just, I mean, and then it's not Netflix's fault, because the killer's crimes were scary. Like, however they stylized that, like, what he did was terrifying. Um, but I just think the way they did it as well just added to that. They didn't they didn't take the viewer out of that. They just were like, how can we make this more immersive and how can we really like ramp up the fear with the style of it, the editing of it, the descriptions, the like maybe like rehashing off like the scenes, like the reenactment sort of thing. Um yeah, I'd, I'd question whether, like, with certain documentaries, whether that's necessary. Um, and I think with true crime, like, as much as people are interested in it, I think they do need to be a bit more careful with how these things are portrayed. I'm not saying that they don't warn people, and of course it's at your discretion to watch these, but, um, yeah. I've always wondered where I stood on, like, um, the accountability of film, TV, documentaries, podcasts, video games, all of that being influenced, like influencing people um, in a negative way for like real life like uh, crime. But the more I think about like true crime and stuff, the more I'm like, it does have a really um, harmful effect on, well, it can potentially have a really harmful effect on people. Um, and I just like be wary of consuming these things so like 
previously um, because I think they can be quite dangerous. And even if it's not that you're going to go out and commit anything, I think it's just dangerous as in like, dangerous maybe just for your own mental health or something to consume a lot of this sort of stuff. It's not easy. Um, but yeah, and just always, I suppose, with true crime, it's just like, <laughs> keep in mind, like, that this was actually something that happened to people and as fascinated as you are with it, like, always got to, like, remember that it was never, never, like, a good thing and, and that these people are, should never be made to be infamous and notorious in any sort of positive sort of way um, because I think we saw that with Columbine as well and I think that with the rise of true crime like it risks happening for a lot of these um, killers and perpetrators. Exactly. So yeah I don't think um, in this case I can really come up with like a sort of um decisive conclusion I guess but I just think it's quite interesting to talk about sort of the popularity of true crime and I really just wanted to talk about it because I've just noticed it like you know the last couple of years and because I'm quite into podcasts and I know I've gotten you into that um that true crime is like a really popular uh genre of podcasts um so yeah I just kind of want you to maybe look at like where it's come from and what's kind of behind it and how much blame I guess you could put on the media but then also I think you can't blame the media solely for everything it has you know the audience does choose especially in this day and age what they listen to and what what content they consume and I think it's just been careful not to consume too much of like content that is quite harmful but to yeah. say that true crime can be and like you said it can just be harmful just because it's dark content that you're watching or you're reading about so just for your own sort of well-being mm -hmm. but um yeah that's really kind of all I wanted to discuss today um do you have any thoughts on what you will be talking about next sadly not that's okay. Be I don't think I think I don't know if it will be necessary like a pop culture thing, but we will see. That's cool. Well, thanks for um, listening, and I'll hand it back to Clara next time. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This podcast was written and recorded by Megan and Claire and hosted on Anchor. Music was taken from Pixabay.